if you've got your Bibles open to John 18, I'd invite you to stay there. It's my last sermon before we get into our Advent series. It's the last Sunday of November. And I want you to think about this big idea, if you would, this morning. The idea is two men, and you saw them highlighted in the passage. One was a sinner. One is the Savior. We are all one of those men, and we all need the other of those men. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. How many of you know, some are laughing, how many of you know what I'm talking about, where that comes from? Stick up your ungodly hands, come on, there you go. That is the opening of every Law and Order episode and all of its spinoffs, right? There's something about trials, court cases, particularly over human history, there have been several great trials that set precedents and somehow determine the flow of history. And the unique interest that captures sometimes not only a country or a culture, but indeed a planet of some of the monumental trials. And several trials might come to mind. If you are history buffs at all, you might remember the great trial of Socrates before the leaders of Athens. Or Charles I when he faced the English parliament. Alfred Dreyfus in France then there's people like Aaron Burr and Mary Stewart who were the defendants of Nuremberg. And of course, who can forget the trial of O.J. Simpson and how that gripped our continent? Trials and justice, fair and unfair. If we're honest as a people, we are all tempted and drawn towards these things. So it shouldn't be any surprise that when you look to your Bible and you look to what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the Gospel writers are drawn into giving us the history of Jesus and they always focus, all four of them, the only thing that's universally common of all four is they focus on his betrayal and his arrest and his trial. But unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, the apostle, once again, he draws us in and wants us to see characters. He wants us and draws his material together so that we'll arrive somewhere. And as we get ready for Advent and we get a glimpse into the criminal system of Judaism and Rome, or maybe more aptly put, as you've already picked up on it, the corruption of the criminal justice system, but ultimately, John the Apostle wants you and I to see one thing and one thing only. And this is one thing I want to keep planting in our minds over and over and over again. Jesus Christ is the only and true high priest. Now, because of my personality, because of my wake-up, I love parts of my Bible that are given over to narrative. I love the drama. I love the humor. I love the storytelling of the Word of God. And right here in this passage that our young man Marcus read for us, you've got a true drama played out right in front of us. If you remember a few weeks ago, we have the tension from the garden where Jesus is arrested, all to this setup to what Marcus just read. But John the Apostle is still beating the drum of a reason why he put all this together. 
And in fact, John the Apostle's putting it together is completely different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He gives no thought really to chronology. He puts his things all together because he's drawing us a picture because he wants us to come to a conclusion. And remember, I've said to you many, many times, John waits till almost the very end of his gospel to give you his purpose in writing. John chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He's admitting, he did all kinds of things that I could have drawn together, but these are not written in this book. He goes on to say, these are written, all of this, including John chapter 18, the way I have put it together, are putting down that you and I, us, we, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his purpose. And friends, as you're here this morning and any of you tuning in online, understand every time you open up the book of John, he has one purpose in mind, that after you've read it, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And there was a result to that believing. He says, and that by believing, you and I may have life in his name, his name. And already... Marcus read, there's a great list of characters in this drama. You've got competing high priests and Annas and Caiaphas. By the way, they're only two of six. Annas was the actually duly Jewish elected high priest. He had been reigning from A.D. 6 to 15. He had been deposed by Rome with five of his children, and then Caiaphas was his son-in-law. They'd all been puppet high priests at some point or the other. Then you've got Peter. You've got this unnamed apostle that many believe are the apostle John himself, the beloved disciple. So here you have two disciples, scared and tired, confused and doubting. But of the two, if you're thinking about Peter and John, the one who you'd think would have been loyal is the one about to deny the very savior he longed for. And there's a servant girl. She's faceless and nameless. There's an aggressive and disrespectful soldier that literally smacks the face of Jesus. And if we're all honest here this morning, we all find ourselves in these characters. You will identify with Peter or maybe John or maybe if it's Annas or Caiaphas, maybe it's the servant girl. We all identify with someone, but we're all meant to look and find hope and life and answers and joy in only one of the characters, and that one is Jesus Christ. And as we end November... And we get ready to kick off our Christmas season. And as I've said before, Jesus was born to die. But as we've said over the last couple of weeks, our theme here at Calvary and our church plants, our theme for this Christmas is going to be rejoice. Brother Paul is going to kick this off for us next Sunday. And while our passage is somewhat ironic and tragic and sad, indeed, it highlights, if you've read it carefully, the evil of sin, the depths of sin, and the deception of sin. Even Mark and Luke specifically tell us that by the end of our passage, Peter has not only denied Jesus three times, but he's gone out and wept bitterly. He's devastated. But I want you to trust me. Rejoicing will come. Rejoicing will come, and not only will it come, it will come abundantly to anyone who will look away from themselves and look to Jesus Christ. But the big question for all of us here this morning, as we approach the end of another year, 
is the greatest question I think I can ask you and be a responsible preacher and pastor. And that is, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself or Jesus? Now, I know it's easy for some of you, many in this room that I know, many of you go, of course, Jesus. Really? Really? Where do you find your joy? In yourself and your pursuits or in Jesus? And if you are trying to name the name of Jesus, but really chasing after your own genes, if you're trying to name the name of Jesus, but really you only trust yourself, when the chips are down, it's all on you. Let me ask, with all sincerity, how's that working out for you? Because when I look at a world that is obsessed with trusting itself, when I look at a world obsessed with trying to find its purpose and its meaning in life and all of these things, what do I see? I see a world more angry, more impatient, more depressed, more anxious, more scared, more at odds with themselves and each other than I believe since I've been born. And so, I want you to realize your entire Bible, not just John 18, 12 to 27, the entire Bible makes this bold claim. Everything from Genesis to Revelation claims this joy, lasting, eternal joy, a peace and contentment can only be truly found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whether it's in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, all the way to the Garden of Heaven in Revelation 22, the claim is the same as John's purpose in writing his gospel. Jesus is the only way. Amen? It's funny though, isn't it? It's almost as if Jesus himself said something like that. Uh, There's some nervous giggles, because some of you are remembering John chapter 14, I think, it's verse 6, right? Where Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. This is what Jesus wants us to know. So our aim today in studying this passage, our challenge is to see two men, Peter and Jesus. We all identify with the one, but we all need the second. And so I want you to come on this journey, not only today with me, but as we set it up for the month of December, because I really believe that by the time we get to this end of this, this this episode in John chapter 18 of the Bible's law and order, this is the Bible's definition or, or episode of law and order. But friends, by the end, we'll see this is how love wins. This is how love wins. It's our blueprint to knowing that love and being transformed by that love. Because Jesus is going to suffer the humiliation and verdict of guilty. Now listen to me. Jesus is going to suffer the humiliation and verdict of guilty. And it was our guilty verdict that he took. It should have been our humiliation. And so that we can be forgiven and we can be set free and we can be adopted and we can be sealed and we can be empowered and we can be given both not only a purpose, but as a people and as a church and as a network, a mission. And that should not, should that not cause us to rejoice? I'm going to say it and I'll say it over and over again. Christians 
should be the most joyful people on this planet. Notice I didn't say the happiest. Happiness is based on a set of circumstances. It's fleeting. Joy is a state of being. It transcends your circumstances because you see not only your current circumstances, but you see it in the light of everything that God is and is going to do, not only for his glory and his kingdom and his mission, but through you and I. Because if you are the son or daughter of God this morning, you have a mission, you have a purpose, you have an identity, you have a value, and we can see it. But before we get into all of that, let's ponder. Number one this morning, Jesus' humble submission versus Peter's curious doubt. Notice again in our passage, the band of soldiers, their captain, the officers arrest Jesus and bind him up. And first they lead him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now don't get confused with this because John takes great literary liberties with how he expresses the passion of the Christ. He's going to bounce all over the place. He wants us to know about Annas because Annas was the Jewish appointed high priest. So in the eyes of Jews, he was the reigning high priest. So what was happening was they wanted to bring Jesus to him. They wanted Annas to give his approval because that would convince Orthodox Jews that this was Jewishly done. But you'll notice it also mentions Caiaphas, who was at that time the Roman appointed high priest which then tells the general populace, this has also got the approval of Rome. And so this is what's going on here. John jumps all over the place. He doesn't follow a chronology because he really wants you to follow a purpose, a person, and an idea. He wants you to wrestle with who's the real, high, who's the real person in charge here? Who's the high priest? Who's the one that's worthy? What's going on here? And you and I are supposed to come to that conclusion. And he wants us to know who the true high priest is. But remember what's already happened. Jesus is bound. And yet if you read the first 12 verses, remember what Jesus said? When the Roman soldiers and this uh, temple security force couldn't, could have numbered as many as six, seven, eight hundred men with torches and lanterns and weapons. And they come and they, Jesus says, who do you look for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. They all fall down. They all fall down. They faint. They cower in fear. And so this is the same Jesus that's now submitting to their arrest. Jesus who fed thousands and walked on water. Jesus who raised people from the dead. Only days earlier he had called forth Lazarus who had been dead for four days. Jesus who cast out demons and told sinner and religious what they thought. Jesus, whom God spoke of aloud, remember in his baptism, and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Jesus, the lamb of God that John the Baptist proclaimed, who said, who has come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, who angels had pronounced to shepherds, is standing here now. He's abandoned. He's alone. And he's a prisoner. He's marched before Annas and Caiaphas. He literally now, the king of kings and lord of lords, the creator of the universe, is standing before his own creation. And they are shaking their finger at him, demanding answers from their creator. 
And John wants us to know just how desperate and shady this whole thing is. Remember, Jesus has been arrested under darkness. He's been marched to Annas, and it's for this reason. They wanted to get the fix in. They were afraid of the mob. They were afraid of the people, and they were afraid of Jesus. And they wanted to get both high priest Jewishly recognized, high priest Romanly recognized, all together. They wanted to dot their I's and cross their T's. And remember, they are afraid of Jesus. But most of all, they're afraid of the people. Ultimately, I think, they're afraid of losing their power and their position. And you'll notice that it says Caiaphas was the one who claimed that someone would have to die. Look at it when it says here. And he says, um, when it talks about Caiaphas in verse 14, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This was actually taken back from John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, it says, but one of them, Caiaphas, notice what it says, who was the high priest that year. This is what was happening. Said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That was his prophecy. Listen, let's get together and kill one guy because they were afraid. In John chapter 11, this is on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Everybody is excited. Many people are believing. Everyone is thinking this, this could be the Messiah. And the religious leadership is panicking. And Caiaphas says, listen, guys, better for us to risk it to kill this guy than for us to have an uprising and lose the nation. John doesn't finish. He goes, he did not say this of his own accord, and this makes me smile. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Do you see how magnificent God is? John wants you and I to know. We can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because even when corrupt and evil men think they're enacting their plan, Jesus and God know the whole time you're just making it go exactly how we planned it and thus john reminds us from a human standpoint they're doing what seems best for them and for the people as they defined it but watch look at jesus in our passage because after that first denial of jesus of, of jesus by peter in 15 to 18 in verse 19 it says the high priest then questioned jesus about his disciples and his teaching and notice jesus answered him i have spoken openly to the world i have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all jews come together i have said nothing in secret why do you ask me Ask those who have heard me and what I've said to them. They know what I said. Here is this submissive Jesus, but look at what control, what love, and what patience. Friends, never forget, John wants you and I to know that humans can plan and scheme, but they are always only acting out what God has already planned. This is the beauty and the security. This is the source of our joy. You see, back in John chapter 10, what Caiaphas prophesied about in John 11 doesn't match at all the power of Jesus' words in John 10 when he looked at a group of disciples and he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And here, get this now, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
But he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so he says, there will be one flock and one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I, I, Jesus says, lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. That almost doesn't seem like our passage, though. Here he is arrested. Here's Annas and Caiaphas making a fool of him, demanding answers from him. But he says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I received from my father. That's why Isaiah the prophet said he was despised and rejected by men. But he said, by his wounds we are healed, and by his stripes we are saved. And why Paul would tell the Philippians that Jesus, who didn't think godness was a thing to be grasped, but gave up his godness and became the form of a human being and died on a cross. And so we see the humble submission of Jesus, but then there's Peter. Oh, oh poor Peter. He's on the outside looking in. Simon Peter followed him in verse 15, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, so John obviously knew somebody in the priestly family. And that shouldn't surprise us. Just like in Newfoundland, there's never more than six degrees of separation. If you talk to any Newfoundlander long enough, you're going to find someone you're related to or someone that works for somebody. I, how many of you that have moved here, if I said it's in Newfoundland, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? And this is no different in first century Israel. And here's Peter. There's obviously relationships involved here, and there's a human dynamic, isn't it? We all live this. Don't we watch the news and hear in Newfoundland, we, we think things. So even with the court cases and stuff that we hear about, even in our own province and our own city, that often we can go, I know someone who knows someone who knows them, right? We all lived with this. And never forget, though, Peter has bragged, hasn't he? Back a few chapters in John chapter 13, when Peter has this argument with Jesus, when Jesus, the creator of everything, Jesus who named the stars, gets up and washes the feet of his disciples. It's Peter like, no, 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 Lord. No, 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 no. You're not going to wash my feet. I should wash yours. And then Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you won't be cleansed. And then Peter, again, extremist, goes, no, no, well then give me an entire bath. I'm going to jump in the pool. I want you to clean all of me. And then he says, no, Peter, you don't need that. I'm your savior. I'm just going to wash your feet to teach you and everybody here humility. And then he says, someone's going to betray me. And Peter says, no, no, not me. And, and can you imagine the kind of friends if we had this kind of friendship? Hey, when we were all together, if there was 12 of us and we were all together, and then someone says, I'm worried that one of you is not going to stay faithful to this friendship. And then I said, hey, listen, they'll all forsake you, but I won't. That makes for some great friendship talk around a dinner table, doesn't it? But that's what Peter does. I can't believe he does it. Everybody else is there. John, Simon the Zealot, a professional assassin. And Peter goes, no, 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 he'll follow it. I won't. And he goes even further in John 13. He says, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Oh, the arrogance and the overconfidence. There's where Peter is. Now, remember, though, Peter is the one who cut off the high priest's armed guard ear off. 
Peter is the one who runs his mouth constantly and yet follow, struggles to follow through. But Peter is also the guy who asks more questions and seeks more, seeks more involvement with Jesus than anybody. By the way, it's only Peter who is the one that walks on water. Nobody else did. In John 6, it was Peter who boldly, and yet maybe with some doubts, said to Jesus when he said, everyone has forsaken me, will you forsake me? And he says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. So I want you to see these curious doubts of Peter, because I think every one of us can identify with it. Again, John wants us to see two figures. He actually wants us to see that Jesus is the true high priest. It's not Annas. It's not Caiaphas. It's not political Rome. It's not even Peter or John, the unnamed disciple. Jesus is the high priest. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Jesus is the only one in this scene with actual power. Do you remember what he said to Peter in Mar- Matthew's gospel after Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, when he touches his ear and heals him, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, don't you realize I could call 12 legions of angels? This was not a person who needed help. Jesus, who spoke creation into existence and held water in the palm of his hand, who can calm seas, whom demons are afraid of. And then there's Peter in the outer court. He's tired and he's cold and he's curious. He loved Jesus, but let's be honest, he's doubting him and he's doubting himself. Peter the braggart, but Peter the man of the inner circle of Jesus. And just about the things, think about just about the things that Peter has seen and heard and experienced. Peter is one that on the Mount of Transfiguration saw Jesus' godness burst forth into human eyes. And yet look at our passage. Peter, who should have been the greatest witness, when asked, are you a disciple? I am not. makes us all a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Oh my, what doubt will do to us, won't it? But let's keep going, because secondly, we see Jesus' faithfulness versus Peter's denials. Look at it. Peter's denial starts small. Look in verses 15 to 18. He simply says in verse 17, I am not. The servant girl at the door simply says, are you not one of the man's disciples? Nope, not me. That's all he says. It's a casual putting off of my true identity so that I can get actually closer to Jesus. Maybe that's how Peter justified it. Peter thought that, you know what, I'm going to fudge it a little bit, but so that God, Jesus knows that I'm not leaving him. I'll tell this servant girl, I'm not one of the disciples, but at least I'm there. I'm in the outer court. I can keep my eye on things. Now, before we judge Peter, how often do we do that? I am known for my haircuts. Don't you judge me. I love my barbershop, Fogtown. I love the people in there. But man, you want to go hear how the culture feels and thinks, go to a barbershop. You want to hear what gets talked about and what gets laughed at and what gets argued over. And I'm telling you, there's been many times I've been sat in that chair and people all around me are talking about politics or they're talking about religion or they're talking about cultural issues and eventually someone's going to out me and go, well, you know, this guy here is a reverend. 
Let's ask the Rev what he thinks. And you know how tempting it is when I'm tired? When I realize that somebody else has got razors and clippers <laughs> close to this general area? To simply change the subject? Or to go, well, there's lots of different views. And I can justify it by saying, I'm only here for 20 minutes or 30. If I get into this now, am I really going to get into it? But that's my opportunity. We do this in our world, don't we? I'll give you what it's called. It's called situation ethics. It's called the ends justify the means. And tragically, not only do we see it in the world, but we're starting to see it too much in our churches. And I don't want you to miss, once Peter lets go of his faithfulness to Jesus, it gets harder and harder for him to get it back. He simply says, I'm not a disciple. I'm not. And it seems so small and insignificant. But Peter couldn't pull back and couldn't stop giving in more and more. Because what happens, he moves into the inner court now. He's out there and he's warming himself by a fire. It's cold and it's damp and he's warm. Who do you think's around that fire? Likely all the army of hosts that came to the garden to arrest Jesus. So he's warming. Now, what do you think that conversation's going like? Boys, now we, find, we got him. Been waiting long enough. Of course, that's my Newfoundland version of the, how that conversation goes. But you, you think they were dropping some jokes, making fun of Jesus, talking about, and as want as men do, no one was admitting they all fainted. No one was admitting they were afraid. Likely the stories were already started as to who arrested him and who, who chained him up and who pushed him along and led him. And there's Peter at that same fire, warming his hands, listening to others, mock his Savior. But watch what happens. He's torturously captured, Jesus is, and see his faithfulness to God. Jesus does nothing but simply answer the questions. He's respectful and in control. He gives over. He's already prayed through the plan of salvation. Never forget, my friends, an angel told Joseph that Jesus would be called Jesus and he would save his people from their sin. Gabriel told Mary that she would give birth to the Savior of the world. Angels told shepherds to rejoice because one who was coming, behold, I give you good tidings of great joy. Prophets foretold back in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Malachi of a coming Messiah. And yet here is Jesus, torturously captured, illegally accused and tried, morally abused and physically tortured. This wasn't a trial. It was murder. Yet that was the plan. Jesus prayed about it in the garden, told the disciples about it in Matthew 16, preached it and lived it and was now about to fulfill it. Jesus is faithful, but Peter denies. Have you ever wondered why? How could Peter do this? And I want you to take note of this, my fellow Christians. Peter is overconfident. Peter is prayerless. And Peter is keeping his distance. John 13, though everybody else abandons you, I won't. I'll die for you. That's overconfidence. Remember in the garden, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they went to the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus goes off to pray and he tells Peter, James, and John, pray. But what do they do? Tell me. They sleep. They don't pray. They sleep. Peter should have been praying, but instead he's sleeping. And then notice he's at a distance. 
He's following distantly under, under the guise of cover. He's already said, I'm not one of the disciples. You see, Pete, backsliding Christians generally begins with a negative prayer life. There are two things that I'm amazed when I ask Christians. Are you reading your Bible and are you praying? See, if Bibles are left unread and without prayer, when marriage is tried to be run without prayer, when journeys are undertaken without prayer, when residents and jobs and careers and life choices are made without prayer, when friendships are formed without prayer, you will deny Jesus. But look at Jesus. He's humbly dependent. He's prayerful and prayer ready. And Jesus is one with the Father, filled with the Spirit. And don't forget the main point, right? There are two people you and I are to see. One's a sinner, one's a Savior. Every one of us in this room is one of these men, and we all need the other. And John wants us to realize, who is the true high priest? The trial was not only illegal, the trial was also cruel. When this soldier slaps Jesus across the face, a bound man, simply because he answered a question. This trial was unholy. This is what sin does to humanity. We break the law. We are cruel. We do this because we are unholy. And it's actually seen in our self-righteousness and our judgmentalness. How much are we always critical of others while justifying ourselves? Now, before you think of the world, think about it inside this room. How often are the words you say in criticism of other people all the while justifying your position, your view, your circumstances? Every one of us thinks I deserve to pass, but nobody else does. That's the world. We are always critical of others while justifying ourselves. But thirdly, notice Jesus' steadfast and sacrificial love versus Peter's self-preservation. I want you to look at something. Look at verses 20 and 21. Paul, it says, Jesus answered the high priest and said, I have spoken openly in the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I love this. He said, I said nothing in secret. I didn't have secret meetings. I don't have a secret club. Even when I taught the disciples, I did in front of watching crowds. Your scribes, your Pharisees were always present. And you know from reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they brought in a myriad of witnesses trying to get someone to trap Jesus and never could. The best they could come up with was someone said, he said he was going to tear down the temple and build it in three days. And they couldn't even get that to stick. They couldn't get two people to say the same thing, which was required by Jewish law. The only way they got Jesus was when we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, finally Caiaphas says to him, are you the son of God? In other words, do you claim to be God? And Jesus says, you have spoken and I am he and you will not see me again till you see the son of man come in his power, which was in essence him saying, I am God. And if you remember in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Caiaphas freaks out and he says, we got him. That's blasphemy. Okay, but watch what happens. Jesus actually pins his integrity and his character on the witness of his disciples. He says, go talk to the ones who hurt me. They'll tell you what I taught. They'll tell you who I am. And one of, if not, the greatest witness Jesus could have called was standing just outside, warming himself around a fire with those who were likely mocking Jesus. 
Jesus' greatest witness is 20 or 30 feet that way, watching what's going on as he warms his hands by a fire. The other gospel writers reminds us that there's no shortage of so-called witnesses. You see, there are plenty of folks that can talk about Jesus. There are plenty of people in St. John's today that will argue about Jesus and what Jesus said and what Jesus meant. Loads would, who would swap knowledge about Jesus. But Peter, the only one there who knew him in relationship, is not just keeping quiet, but actually denying any relationship with Jesus. In the next verses, the shocking and escalating denials of Peter come to view in verses 22 to 27. Because finally someone else says, um, sorry, now Simon Peter, verse 25, was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that the second denial, they attached it to his accent. You sound like a Galilean. And it's funny. These verses are shocking and escalating because not only has he overconfident, not only does he lack prayer, not only is he keeping his distance, but finally and ultimately the undoing of Peter is his fear of man over love of Jesus. You could say and think that Peter is accused of knowing Christ and actually his accent or the way he talks, you could say that's even a positive accusation. But the second accusation, which is the third denial, when someone says one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man who, whose ear Peter had cut off. So this is someone related to Malchus. He says, did I not see you in the garden? He hasn't even actually accused Peter of being the guy that cut it off. But he's like, I'm pretty sure you were there. And we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter takes an oath. He curses his own existence. He literally says, may God judge me. I don't know him. I'm not with him. Jesus is being slapped and disrespected. He's bound and accused, but he's faithful. Peter's denying. And let me, let me say this. You and I will deny him, but he will never deny us. We will falter and we feel, we'll fail. We'll give in to our fears. We'll trust our instincts for self-preservation and survival. We'll become defensi defensive and give in to our comparative righteousness to justify our anger and our bitterness and our standards. We do this to hide our sin and to avoid dealing with our issues. And yet Jesus stood still there alone being mocked and scorned. The God of the ages allowing himself to bear our shame, to bear our guilt, to wear our sin so that you and I can be set free and find forgiveness and be adopted and the cross brings about the greatest reversal of the values of the world because in Jesus we see weakness is strength and humility is glory and sacrifice is victory giving is gain the victory of the kingdom comes through the suffering of Jesus think of the love of God and look and live the hymn writer says, I have a message from the Lord. Hallelujah. A message unto you I give. It's recorded in his word. It is only that you look and live. He says, life is offered unto you, and eternal life your soul shall have. If you'll only look to Jesus, hallelujah, look to Jesus who alone can save. And I'll tell you how I came to Jesus when he made me whole. Twas believing on and in his name I trusted, and he saved my soul. 
This is why John does what he does. John's all over the place, throws Annas at us and Caiaphas at us. He throws Peter's denials all mixed in with Jesus' faithfulness because John wants you and I to come to the obvious conclusion. Jesus is the true high priest. Jesus is the only one who I can trust and I must. Jesus, my friends, is the only way for mercy and justice to come together. Jesus is the only way for a holy God to forgive unholy people. We are sinners. You minds well own it. I am a sinner. I wish every service could be like AA. Do you know what happens at AA? They sit in a circle and they take turns and says, does someone want to share? And someone stands up and says, hey, I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic and it's been six weeks since my last drink. Wouldn't it be great if we could come to church every week? Hey, hey, I'm Steve. I'm a sinaholic. It's been eight seconds since my last sin. But Jesus paid for it all. Jesus paid for it all. Remember what Matthew said when the angel came to Joseph and he said, you'll call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. He told him that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Peter's self-preservation caused him to stare into the eyes of this love as he cursed him and swore an oath of denial. It caused him to go out and weep bitterly. And I think in that moment, Peter's worst nightmare came true. How am I any different than Judas? Because Matthew, or Mark and Luke tell us that when he denied him, Luke actually tells us he looked and Jesus and him locked eyes. Maybe I can drive this home a little bit better. I was telling some of the staff about this. I tend to bring the guys in and tell them a little bits about my sermon, and I was telling them this and trying to talk about it, and I was trying to drive it home, and many of you have talked to me about how I speak and how I feel about Debbie. It is much to the chagrin of Debbie when I talk about her publicly. But many of you have talked about the fact that I declare my love to her and how I feel about her. But can you imagine if I had done all of this and then you were at the office one day with me and I'm in there and you're asking me about my relationship with Debbie and I finally look at you and go, listen, man, I'm stuck with her. She is the ball and chain. Like you have no idea what life is like with her. Like I can't believe it. I've been clinging to life. She sucks the very life right out of me. I can't believe I'm with it. You don't understand. Like, it's just, it's miserable to be, miserable to be with her. And I'm, I've got my back to the door, and I'm talking with you guys, and all of a sudden I see the expressions on your face change. Have you ever had this when you're just ragging on someone, and then you realize that person's behind you? And so I'm just ragging on Debbie, and I'm saying all these nasty things about Debbie after I have pledged my love to her, after all the things I've said, and then I turn around and I lock eyes, and there she is. And the one that I have said that I would love and be faithful to my whole life, the one that I have pledged my love to, the one that I have bragged about, the one I have said that I would be loyal to, and she has stood there and listened to me discriminate against her and run her down and deny her love and deny her value and deny, and then we lock eyes. I get emotional even thinking about it because I would never want to do that to her. And yet how often do we do it? You see, Jeremiah was right when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
You see, Jesus did not submit himself to this unjust death because the Jewish priests and the lawyers were corrupt. It was because the entire human race was corrupt. Jesus wasn't surprised by his treatment. He, because he came into the world as the remedy for the problem of our sin to achieve the forgiveness of sinners. Michael Reeves reminds us of something very important. When your heart feels cold, when you feel cloddish, know that your very joylessness fills Christ with compassion. And this, my friends, is where my title comes from. Two men, one a sinner and one a savior. And you see, unless you can prove you're not corrupt or cowardly, unless you can prove you've always been faithful, you've never sinned, then we are all condemned. Paul tells us this in Romans. James makes it crystal clear. He says, if you've broken the law in just one point, you're guilty of all of it. Now, I've said, and I've made the claim that this passage gives us hope and that we're about to embark on an Advent season to rejoice. Well, how can that be? How can I make this claim? Well, for starters, John 18, 1 to 27, the difference between Jesus and Peter, for every time Peter said, I am not, Jesus said, I am in the garden, Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am. And then Peter said, I am not. And that's where the hope is found. The hope is found in realizing that Jesus walked this lonely road to the cross in order that he might be Isaiah 53, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. And oh, and by the way, this was Peter's also his hope of the gospel. It was Peter that would later write in his letter, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. So my question as the end is what I said at the beginning. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you to a day acknowledge I am a sinner? If you're here today and you've been confronted by Annas or Caiaphas, will you admit I am a religious poser? Because that's what Annas and Caiaphas were, posers. This is the beauty of John's gospel. He gives us a list of folks we can identify with. But Christian, if you're here this morning, as we prepare to celebrate another Christmas season, and for this Christmas, it's going to be hard for some of you. For many, this Christmas will be just weighty and even exhausting. For many of you, this Christmas will be a struggle for finances. It'll be a struggle for family. It'll be a struggle for age and sickness and pain. And be honest, when has pride gotten in the way of you and gotten you away from God? When was the last time your brags and your standards have driven you away from Christ and not to him? When are your failures and even your denials, you're saying one thing but living another? When was the last time you and I wept bitterly, were broken, frustrated, or admitted we were angry? How often do we play the blame game or the excuse game? It's not my fault if you only knew. Christian, this passage is for you and I to understand the gracious work of the true high priest. One man writes, at the very same moment Jesus was being denied by Peter, Jesus was claiming that his disciples were reliable witnesses to his teaching. The contract is stark and indeed to penetrate the heart of the reader because Peter exemplifies the struggle and the challenge of Christian discipleship. Our spiritual life finds its source, not in good intentions, but in the good shepherd. The denials of Peter depict with glaring detail how the creation of the children of God was never intended to be based on our merit, but from God alone. And so that, my friends, is the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing and trusting in Jesus.
It's the power of our relationship. And you and I know this. I've talked about my wife, and probably second only to my wife, I've talked about my dad. And my dad is not a perfect person. My dad has made mistakes. But you know what? If any of you mock my father, you and I are going to have words. Because that's my dad. If any of you mock my wife, we're going to have words. Because that's my wife. When people mock our Savior, will we graciously and humbly have words? Because that's my king. That's my dad. As much as discipleship is a response to what God has done, Jesus was serious when he said, that you need to talk and hear and know from my disciples. See, the witness of the church on behalf of Christ springs not from adequacy, but from our inadequacy. It's only our I am not that allows us to say I am. And for this reason, the Christian can answer honestly when asked about his association to Christ. He says, I am, but only because he knows that he is the I am not, and Jesus Christ alone is the I am. So who are you resting in? Are you willing to let go of your bitterness and your anger, your pride, your situation ethics, and will you embrace the Savior? Own the fact that you're a sinner. Meet the Savior who will change you and this world. Merry Christmas, and may we enjoy it this year. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I pray and I beg you that my family and my friends, both in this room and online, will have heard a better sermon than I could preach. Oh, God, I am desperate to be like Peter, who was confident in you and not in himself. And I'm so thankful that in the coming months, we will skip ahead to John chapter 21 and we'll see Peter gathered around a fire again, this time warming himself and being fed by Jesus Christ himself. Lord, you are the one who takes the broken and you restore them. So, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you, they've been religious, maybe they've been trusting in their good works or their church name or their religious behavior to save them, may they realize that's a denial of Jesus. And maybe there are Christians here who need to own the fact that they're hiding anger and bitterness they're angry at other people. They're always blaming people, always demanding everybody live up to their standards because, Lord, Father, ultimately they're denying how much they've been forgiven of by you, what they have in you. Lord, maybe there's some here living a double life. Maybe there's some here racked with anxiety and fear. Oh, God, may we look into the eyes of Jesus. Oh, yes, may we weep bitterly, but may we know the steadfast love of our submissive yet controlling Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.